2: Hello, and welcome to a chilly January edition of Outward. I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and my new sexuality is Henry Cavill's subsonic growl in the masterpiece that is The Witcher.
3: Can you do a, a little
2: oh yeah. Uh, toss a coin to your Witcher. <laughs>
1: That's Something my like new that. sexuality, too.
2: <laughs> yeah, wow, it's hot. It's I, really hot. I need to go off the water now. It's, sort of, it's almost like a <laughs> oh, vibrator yeah. for your ears, you know? It's, like, <laughs> it's great. <laughs>
4: Um, I'm Ramon Alam, and I am having a very difficult time this winter with these, uh, the early sunsets, and just Ugh. the general feeling of being bummed by everything and so my solution, my medicine has been watching the first four seasons of a show that everyone's already watched and we've all already talked about it which is the Great British Baking Show ah. and being super into the lesbian antics of mm-hmm. the hosts and yes. I find it very comforting and you know what and also I can leave it on and my kids can watch it with me and there's something really lovely about so that. So safe, yeah. yeah and
2: sunny so sunny.
4: So sunny and so sweet and so optimistic and also so weirdly so gay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah, that actually brings me to my intro. <laughs> I'm Christina Catterucci, Slate staff writer and host of the Slate podcast The Waves, and I made crumpets on Sunday. Whoa. That's right, crumpets. Wow. Wow. So I now identify as a, a fancy crumpet gay. Wow. <laughs> Is its own kind of game. Very, sure. very specific <laughs>
2: but very important kind
3: but Yeah, of I too. Me and my wife have been watching British Bake Off sort of as like a come down if we watch something else stressful yes. or just have a very Absolutely. stressful day. Absolutely. We'll be like, let's just have that on in the background where we're really like brushing our teeth and stuff. And it just, it's such a lovely way to wrap up the day. And made me want to do, I found out that the flour I had in my cabinet expired in 2015. I never bake. But I was like, <laughs> if I, I like that. watching uh, this Daniel, Daniel, Daniel our stays. producer,
2: who is an avid baker, is sh- sh- shook. <laughs> <laughs> oh my so God. So did
3: you. I'm imagining that wow. you're like vomiting wow. right now. So, new year, new me.
2: New flower, I hope, yes. <laughs> new
3: flower, definitely new flower. <laughs> Actually, one of the gayer things that happened to me this month also was my friend who's a lesbian who works at NPR gave me her sourdough starter
5: oh, to that's start incredible. making.
3: That's yeah, incredible. I made sourdough crumpets.
4: You have to buy a Subaru now,
3: Christine. <laughs> I have a Prius, which is the second yeah, best Yeah, there though. you go. Yeah. Um. All right, well, that's that's it for our intro. <laughs> Before we get into our topics for the week, we have one order of business. We are recording a special bonus episode for Valentine's Day. And listeners, we're going to be answering some of your advice questions. John Paul Brammer, who's the Poppy behind the Hola Poppy advice column that's been published in many venerated queer publications like Into and Out and Them, will be joining us to help us answer your hottest, most pressing questions about love Sex, romance, dating, crushes, marriage, seduction, anything weird that your sweetie has been doing. Ask us your questions. You can email us at outwardpodcast at slate.com or even better, leave us a voicemail at 929-266-4914 so we can play your lovely voice on our show. We have such a great episode this month. I'm really happy to be back together with you guys after the break. Mm. We're going to start out with... A discussion of exclusively gay moments, a.k.a. minimal hints of queer representation in mainstream film and TV shows. Then we'll interview Richie Jackson, the author of Gay Like Me, a collection of letters to his gay son, and finally, we'll wrap up with a gay agenda of our favorite exclusively queer moments from pop culture.
2: But first, we will start, as always, with our round of Pride and Provocations. Uh, just as a reminder for perhaps new listeners, Pride and Provocations is a segment where we either talk about a thing going on in queer life that we are proud of or that provokes us, named after Bette Porter's infamous Provocations art exhibition and the original L word. Ramon, would you like to start us off?
4: You know, it's 2020, and I feel like I should be positive, but honestly, I'm a little provoked at the moment. That's fine. Yeah. Um, A couple of weeks ago, Chastin Buttigieg, who is married to uh, the Democratic candidate for president, Pete Buttigieg, was scheduled to do an event at a gay club. I believe it was in Providence, Rhode Island. And shortly, uh, just, just upon his arrival at the venue... His campaign realized that there was a stripper pole in the venue and that they deemed that this was not appropriate, you know, an appropriate signal to telegraph for the the spouse of a presidential candidate and they relocated to a, a nearby space. The original venue then dragged the Buttigieg campaign on social media and I have to say, I think that they were not wrong to do so. Yes, I understand the importance of telegraphing a sort of respectable respectability, and I know that Pete and Chasten are in a difficult position. There, they have to look like Barack and Michelle Obama as mm. they're as as Pete is seeking office. But we are adults, and gay people go see half-dressed men and women dancing on stage. So do straight people. You know, Stormy Daniels who does this for a living now was you know had a sexual relationship with a man who is currently in the oval office and if <laughs> we can if we can let that go i think we can let go the idea that you know we shouldn't you know i don't know we shouldn't swoon with displeasure or just dismay that a, an adult man would appear in a venue where once a man with no <laughs> shirt on danced on a pole. I think we're adults, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think they missed an opportunity to sh- to say that, you know, to, to do that event and, and let there be that pushback, if because surely there was pushback that was inevitable, um, but to seize the moral high ground and say, like, that is just part of being gay and this is a campaign of ideas and, you know, this is a silly ridiculous
2: debate. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I I think like given how much trouble Pete has been having with like the queers not necessarily lining up behind like I think was expected like this is it just seems like such an unforced error yeah, it's like agree. like yeah. probably if anybody had criticized the stripper pole like in a picture later after the event like it probably wouldn't have been like a huge story like honestly like it's a little it wasn't even him it was you know chasen in rhode island in Providence. Yeah, like it's not yeah. it wasn't something major and like i don't think it would have blown up in anything into anything bad this made it worse I agree. like the, yeah. this like over over uh concern about respectability was just uh, so silly but The very him, I think, actually. So I guess I'm not shocked. It's
3: also, you know, sex is part of the word sexual orientation. Or Mm, sex is part of the term sexual orientation. You know, it's right in there. Like, being gay is not just about sharing a home and a marriage with someone of your same gender. It's also about... Ogling them and having sex with them (laughs) and like possibly going to clubs where people might gyrate on a pole and not to say that that's the only way of being gay, but to act like it's not at all related to being gay and that a gay club that has a pole or any intimation of sexual attraction is beyond the pale for a, a political event provokes me as well
4: i mean the republicans have forever ceded the moral high ground on this given who currently occupies the oval office Indeed. and if the democrats had any sense they would push that message out there but i am just preaching to the choir here mm. christina how are you <laughs> feeling
2: uh,
3: i too am provoked So I got an email this month from the Illinois Institute of Technology that was promoting a study. It was actually published last summer in the Archives of Sexual Behavior, but I guess they're just doing their press promotion now. So the email said that these two psychology professors who did the study had discovered, quote, a new sexual orientation group. Mm. I was so excited to hear about this as somebody (laughs) interested in sexual orientation. Like, what have I not heard about? Turns out the group is heteroflexibles. Imagine my surprise and confusion since I identified as heteroflexible in 2004, 16 years before the two people who did the study <laughs> discovered us. You. For, They've been reading <laughs> your live
4: journal, Christina.
3: <laughs> oh, my God. I totally, <laughs> totally talked about heteroflexibility on my live journal. So the way that this paper described heteroflexibility or heteroflexibles is this way. They're men and women who identify as heterosexual but are strongly attracted to or engage in sex with people of the same sex. This group does not identify as bisexual, which is why these individuals are in their own unique category. And the researchers say, you know, it's important that we have a shared language to address this group of people who, you know, might not check the box that says gay or bisexual, but who indeed may be having sex with people of, you know, their same gender, um, in part to address things like health disparities. You know, it's really important when you're talking about sexual behavior to know what kinds of sex a person is having, because there are different risks that go along with different kinds of sex. and, And, you know, especially when we talk about things like PrEP. But, you know, there's already a word for people who have sex with people of the same sex and don't identify as bisexual, at least in public health, there's, you know, the term men who have sex with men, Mm -hmm. women who have sex with women, Mm -hmm. so that you're not saying you have to have this certain identity. We're talking about sexual behavior, not sexual identification. And so I'm not sure why we need to have this quote unquote new term, which actually isn't new, heteroflexible, when You know, people don't identify that way. And I think if somebody isn't identifying as bi or as gay or as queer or any of the other sort of now uh, accepted terms for sexual identity, there's probably a reason why. You know, maybe they don't want to identify that that way themselves, because they, it would change the way they think about their lives or interacting with the world. And I would hope that we could get to a place in society where our terms are broad enough and welcoming enough. And there's, we've reduced stigma enough that people can say, oh, yeah, you know, if I'm attracted to and having sex with people of my same sex, maybe I'll identify as queer or bi or whatever. But also, if they identify as heteroflexible, that's fine. But I'm not sure it needs to be sort of academicized and medicalized in a way that would have any, I don't think there would be any different impact than what is already covered by terms that already exist.
2: Yeah, I I, I share your provocation at this, and I, I feel like it speaks to a thing that sometimes happens in this kind of research where either like, how would I put it, like sort of psychological or political phenomena are being like treated as if they're scientific or biological if that makes sense so it's like the the, the language of discovery right the language of discovery suggests like there is a new subspecies of something in the world and in fact what it is is that there are people who for the you know perhaps for the reasons that you just uh, articulated like are not choosing to identify by the terms that exist that would cover them like you know bisexual would cover that experience but they don't want to do it for you know who knows I don't know the individuals, but like there's, there's probably sort of political or personal or whatever reasons. And that doesn't mean that there is a new scientific category. It just means that like humans are complicated and have issues around (laughs) identification. Right. And Mm -hmm. like, I, I don't think it's right. I don't think it's helpful to sort of Make that seem more formal than it is. I don't know.
3: So, congrats to those people who made that discovery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not buying it, um, Brian. How do you feel this month?
2: I am feeling tentatively proud. Tentative because I haven't watched the entire thing yet. But I am really loving the Netflix docu series "Cheer," which is about a cheerleading team associated with a, I think it's Community or Associates Degree College in uh, Navarro, Texas. Um, and it's, you know, a mixed gender cheerleading team. It's more, it's, they do support the sports at the school, but they also are, but mainly they're doing like competitive cheerleading, which is a whole different situation. And I'm proud of it because obviously, or maybe not obviously, but uh, maybe unsurprisingly, there are definitely some queer, especially men on this team. And the show treats their sort of experience of that very matter-of-factly. It doesn't sort of dig into it too much, but it just lets it happen. And, you know, given that they're in Texas, there is a lot of interesting tension around that, right? So they, they are needed to be on the team to do all of the heavy lifts and the stuff that, that, that uh, men typically do on cheerleading teams. But at the same time, they, they're sort of uh, exuberance and and sort of queerness. Is not always appreciated. Um, the coach of the team uses the f- the very southern phrase "over the top" to describe <laughs> them. It's like he, she's speaking about one guy in particular. And she's like, he's just he's just like the most over the top. Like they're all over <laughs> the top, um, which is I don't know if she means it in a derisive way, but it's just it's it's this very southern kind of way of talking about. No, he's just like a big queen, and like right. that's that's what's happening. And also, there's this amazing scene, bad amazing, I think, where they're in a a sort of state civics class and this teacher proceeds to explain because there's a lot of out of staters there to explain like what Texas culture is Um, and she states like matter of factly that Texas culture is homophobic and like a one man one woman marriage like Gun toting, blah blah blah. Like this is her teacherly presentation of of wow. Of. Ah. Yeah, it's really it's really fucked up. But um, but and and the camera sort of cuts to like one of the queer guys, like sort of looking, you know, confused and upset by this. So all of which to say, I think the show's great. It's fascinating, scary. The cheerleading is terrifying um, and dangerous, but also it is a queer haven for a lot of. I think especially gay guys and so uh seeing that explored sort of gently on the show has been wonderful and i I recommend it so far maybe it takes a turn but but, (laughs) uh, so far it's really good
3: That's chumbacasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
3: All right. Now it's time for us to discuss the exclusively gay moment for the uninitiated among our listeners. That term was accidentally coined by Bill Condon, who directed the 2017 live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast. So before that film's release, Condon was out doing promo interviews. And he was hyping what he called an exclusively gay moment that we could expect in the film, featuring the first openly gay character in a Disney movie. The film came out. People saw it. And that moment, I would say the word moment, turned out to be a very accurate way of describing the gay storyline. <laughs> it was just a couple seconds long, featured LeFou, who was Gaston's, out, let's say, over-the-top sidekick. <laughs> uh, very. Yeah. And he was dancing gasp with another man. This was like toward the end of the movie, and I had watched the whole thing with my eyes peeled wide open for the exclusively gay moment. It was, I don't know, like maybe in the last minute or two of the film, if you weren't looking for it or if you were, you know, looking down at your bowl of popcorn or plate of crumpets toward the end of the movie, (laughs) you would not have even noticed it was happening. And we saw something similar happen just this year in the most recent Star Wars film, The Rise of Skywalker. J.J. Abrams, who directed that movie, told Variety before it came out that he wanted the Star Wars universe to, quote, look more the way the world looks than not. In the case of the LGBTQ community, it was important to me that people who go to see this movie feel that they're being represented in the film. So fast forward to the last few minutes of that movie, and there's a quick shot of these two unnamed women kissing in a crowd. I feel so (laughs) represented. So the response to these kinds of moments, the exclusively gay moment, which we'll sort of define as like a fleeting moment of queerness in an otherwise not queer cultural product that is extraordinarily hyped, usually before the release by the usually straight director. The response has been all over the board, especially when it comes to queer people's reactions. Some people are saying like, this is great in these highly respected franchises or pieces of intellectual property. We're actually seeing queerness. Some people are saying, this is BS. I don't feel like I can see myself in these. Is three seconds of dancing, man-on-man dancing. What do you guys think?
4: It's, it seems so clear to me that this is the machinery of capital mm. paying lip service to representation for the sake of making people feel seen and seduced and ratified by the products of capital, right? Like, it is absurd to think that any queer person anywhere is like, oh, God, I feel so seen by these two extras in this billion-dollar <laughs> Star Wars movie kissing for one-fifteenth 1 of a second on screen. That is not actual representation, it feels very craven to me and very silly to me. And as we were preparing to, to have this conversation, I racked my brain to think of an example of this that had actually resonated with me and I have to say that my my takeaway is that I actually prefer the subtext it feels Mm. more honest to me Mm. when there are subtextual messages even if they're external and there's just I'm reading subtext into Dawson and Pacey Someday Making Out because like that feels more genuine and more like a An actual response to the art rather than this craven idea. It's it's like when it's not dissimilar to when Friends in its like final last dying gasps put a black actor into Mm. the show. And we're like, look, Ross is dating a black woman like remarkable. You know, it just feels silly to me.
2: Yeah, I'm so glad you said that about subtext. Because I, I, what what strikes me about this is that I think the reason, perhaps, that these directors and PR people and all the people that are behind the uh, exclusively gay moment phenomenon, the reason I think they they think it is effective is because our own organizations have um, had a, a, I think, bad habit of counting. Sort of doing representation through counting, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. so it's it's all about like glad is an example, but not by no means the only group that does this where it's it's sort of about like how many times did like we see a bisexual like f- in, for any length of time in a TV show this year like that that kind that model of, of attending to representation. And so you do feel, I can see, you know, being a a kind of uh, Hollywood person and thinking, well, maybe that's what we need to do to get credit for it because that seems to be what they want. But I, Ramon, I feel the same way. I am so into like, I so, so prefer Drenching my own meaning yeah. from art uh, in the in the the classically gay sort of way, yeah. which is what we had we had to do for so long because there were there wasn't anything. That experience and that exchange and that that sort of act of reading, I think, can be so much richer and and allow for a lot more play and you know subversiveness and and all kinds of things.
3: You all have made a lot of great points, and it. I, I'm starting to think that when I see an exclusively gay moment or like a very, very sort of surface level nod to queerness, it seems to me like they've placed a limit on how much queerness is in the movie. Mm-hmm. Because they're saying, you know, we're willing to put queerness in this movie. We're identifying it in people. And this is all we're showing you. So everything else in the film that that we are not explicitly coding as queer isn't. Whereas if films, you know, like the original Beauty and the Beast, right. there was no explicit queerness in that movie So I can say like, huh, (laughs) yeah, well, I'm like, well, it kind of seems like Gaston is gay. Well, right. right. Gaston
2: and LeFou have, I mean, have a tension there anyway. Exactly. And it seems
3: like he's closeted. But once it's explicitly in there that LeFou is dancing with this man at the end, it's kind of implicitly removing the queer possibility from the things that they didn't show. I will defend the exclusively gay moment in that there are still a lot of people, kids, who are probably growing up with parents who, you know, aren't going to take them to see Moonlight or let them watch sure. work in p- progress or pose. Yeah. But they may take them to see Star Wars and Beauty and the Beast and yeah. they may be so blind to queerness that they won't even notice these yes. exclusively gay yeah. moments because they are, by design, extremely small. Yeah. And But a kid might see that. And, you know, I think it is a pleasure. I get more excitement in real life to see random queer people at, you know, a pasta bar than I am to see them at a dyke bar because I'm like, oh, look, we're everywhere. Mm. So I support the – to some extent, like the normalization of queer affection in film, that it should be a given as you're casting a scene with background actors or extras that some people – some of those people should be nonconforming – some of those people should be gender nonconforming and yeah. some of those people should be visibly queer as a matter of course because you're representing the world. But the overpromotion of it seems like the real offense because right. it seems to serve the, the companies that are promoting the film and, and making money off the film more than the queer viewer. Like they're definitely getting more out of it than we are.
4: It's generous of you to think of like the effect that this might have on kids who might not otherwise get to see that. But I think that sort of goes back to what Brian and I are talking about, which is that as a survival mechanism, you develop the ability to read that into what texts you are given. I mean, to me, like the most deeply erotic text of my childhood was Saved by the Bell. Like, forget Uh it. Like, you know, and Uh that is... Who was
3: gay in that show? Oh, well, first of all, all
4: of them were gay. (laughs) <laughs> I, they're always taking their shirts off when nothing is gayer to me than that, like you know, <laughs> but um, yeah. that's just like, that's just the the lens through which I was watching that text. I was experiencing that text and obviously there's nothing in the show or maybe there is, I don't know, I haven't watched it in years, so maybe it's baked into that dynamic, but that just becomes how you kind of learn to survive inside of a culture that you do not direct, you know? Yeah.
3: Yeah. I want to talk about another thing that, Has been annoying me lately, and this is sort of linked to one particular show, but I know there are other examples of it too. Making a character who's obviously gay and never making them gay. I'm thinking of—I don't know if you've seen the marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Mm -hmm. Amazon Prime. So the character of Susie, who's Mrs. Maisel's uh, manager, is extremely masculine of center. In fact, a running gag in the show is that people keep. Um, mistaking her for a man. you know she wears a little newsboy cap, little button up shirts, little vests, and this She's is in cute as
4: a button, a Oh, totally Orstein, right yeah totally. So cute.
3: And, you know, she's incredibly butch. She's got a key around her neck. Like, there's nothing about her that is saying, I'm a straight woman who wants to be in a relationship with a man. But every, you know, by the end of season three, and I'm done watching it now because A, it's starting to just, the show is annoying the shit out of me, but also because (laughs) they haven't said anything about her being gay. And every interview that Alex Borstein has done, she said, oh, I just don't think Susie, I don't think she's ever been kissed. I don't think she's ever been in love. She doesn't even think about romance. Romance, doesn't think about love, doesn't want love. I'm like, okay, but if she's asexual, they should tell us that. Because mm-hmm. if you've done three seasons of a show and one of the main characters has, we've never even heard how she thinks about love, relationships, sex, like that's just a part of the adult human experience. Yeah. And if you, especially if you're a woman in 1960, you have been forced to think at that point and even now about whether you want a romantic relationship and if so, with whom and how. And you're giving us this masculine of center woman who's constantly being mistaken for a boy who's who's talking about sex with the woman she's managing. And you're telling me she's never thought about who she wants to have sex with or whether she wants to have sex. It's unbelievable and extremely offensive. And that show kind of markets itself as being – a little bit progressive and a little cheeky and um, I I just don't think there's any excuse for that in 2020
4: Amy Sherman Palladino who is the creator and producer of that show also created the um, Gilmore Girls and Mm -hmm. Michelle on Gilmore Girls is similarly clearly meant to be the portrayal of a gay man. He's a sort of fussy um, oh, yeah. European oh, I think he's actually French Canadian maybe. Yeah, he's French Canadian and he works in in the inn and over the course of however many I think it ran for 7 seasons by the end he it, it's declared that he's straight and it just strains credulity wow. and and it was is really a missed opportunity because it could have been like a really charming depiction of like a fussy queen and for them to just make him straight it's just like well why didn't you just see this through you set it up and then you didn't see it through and then does that feel transgressive to you that he's actually straight
3: i it, it's just yeah. kind of
4: silly it's mm. just kind of silly
3: wow yeah and and you know in the in my most generous and least believable explanation of this they're trying to expand portrayals of straight people who are gender nonconforming, but sure. i actually think don't of think all that the newsboy cap wearing
4: <laughs> straight women out there right, right, but, you know. right in yeah, the 1960s and do, yeah. and
2: do we need that right like I, f- I feel like we have so much work to do on the queer side of that yeah. equation first before yeah. i need i need a ton of that
4: I tried so hard to think of an example of these moments. I struggled and struggled and struggled, and then I finally, it it occurred to me, because my husband and my kids watched a James Bond movie this weekend, that in the James Bond movie, Diamonds Are Forever, Mm. there is a gay couple who are assassins, and their names are Mr. Kidd and Mr. Wint, and they <laughs> oh trade quips, and they, um, there's a scene, a sort of memorable moment, where I think it's Sean Connery has just been near them or seen them, and he sort of sniffs the air, implying that one of them is wearing a lot of cologne. <laughs> and it is a super... Accurate. I mean, it's a very campy movie, and it's a super campy portrayal, and I remember as a child being like, holy shit, these dudes <laughs> are gay. And it, like... I highly recommend watching that movie from an adult perspective, a 2020 perspective and seeing what uh, an actual representation of gay people, you know, stereotypical as it might be, but seeing how transgressive and shocking it can be in a Hollywood entertainment.
2: I feel like Bond villains is a rich vein. Oh, they're all sort of queer. Yeah, it's right? yeah. a
4: mine anyway, all for villains in general. Yeah, villains generally. <laughs> <For right>?
2: Excellent <laughs> representation.
3: <laughs> so I just want to posit something as we wrap up this segment. And this might sort of uh, fall into the trap of trying to quantify representation, which you so eloquently trash at the beginning of the segment, <laughs> uh, Ryan. But um, if there were to be, let's say, like a Bechdel test for exclusively gay moments to count as good gay moments, uh. what would it have to be? Like both of the characters have to have names. They both, they have to engage in a sex act? Mm. That seems wrong.
2: <laughs> yeah, I feel like they definitely, let's see. I think they definitely have to have names or their names have to be in the credits at least. Yeah. Uh, I feel like their existence in the in the show or the show or the, the movie must have, like, even the smallest, like, impact on the plot. Like, you know, it could even just be that they that they own... Well, they're, they're the assassins, a couple yep. <laughs> of assassins who kill the main character. That would be great. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, they're like clerks at a store or something like just some, something or I shouldn't say they should. I don't think it has to be just a couple. Right. Like, I think. No,
3: you're right. Someone I think can it, be gay on their
2: own. Yeah. Someone can, yeah. <laughs> we can be gay all by ourselves. Yeah. I feel like I feel like they have to have some direct like even even a small one like impact on what's happening. It can't just yeah. be in the background. Uh, it can't be set dressing now.
3: But I guess the reason why I thought two people was – part of the Bechdel test was that there has to be two women talking to each other about yeah. something other than a man. And I wonder – but maybe demanding that there be two gay characters plays into the idea that gay people have to be having sex in order to be gay. And, and we don't want to suggest that gay people have to have a romantic interest in order for us to know or care that they're gay.
2: Well, you know what? I'm thinking – the romantic part actually maybe makes sense because that is what is challenging to the people who would be upset by it like not the the, the flamboyant for example uh, character on his own is probably not going to draw the ire of your uh, religious groups but the, it's the kiss that will right so hmm. so if you're going to promote your movie as progressive based on inclusion then the, The romantic aspect has to be foregrounded more than just a flashing thing in the background, perhaps.
4: Or you should demand that it rises from subtext to text, that it's not just a he's over the top. Mm -hmm. It's that... You know, if there's a scene with Charlie, the gay receptionist, somebody should just be like, "God, Charlie, what a gay! <laughs> what a gay!
3: Yeah. What <laughs> a gay Charlie that should, Charlie yeah.
4: is!" You know, there
3: should be some sort of a reference to them being gay, and not just us having to infer something by watching it.
4: Right? And like, I can't work Yeah,
2: Charlie mm-hmm.
4: could have like a, ki- a can of Muscle Milk on his desk, and it could be like, "Yeah, <laughs> Charlie's gay." Now we know.
3: You know? Wow. We
2: only want <laughs> stereotypes. <laughs> we're, we're. I just mean, like that, all works, about- for, that <laughs> works
3: for. That works for. Lesbians too. So. There, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. All right. Unfortunately, I think that's all the time we have to talk about exclusively gay moments on this exclusively gay podcast. <laughs> listeners, we'd love to hear your favorite or least favorite moments of queer representation. You can email us at outwardpodcast at slate.com.
1: On Death Sex and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things.
2: I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving.
1: Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts.
4: Outward listeners who listen to every episode religiously will know already that the three of us are tremendous book nerds. And we were delighted to have Richie Jackson here today. Richie is a theatrical producer who lives in New York City and is the author of a new book called Gay Like Me, which has just come out this month. And it is a book of letters that Richie wrote to his own son, who is himself a gay man. Richie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So, Gay Like Me is written as a series of letters to your son, who is now 18 years old. Right. And you wrote these letters to him as a gay father raising a gay young man. Yes. The book also kind of functions as a biography or a sort of telling of your own experience coming out as a young man. And I sort of wanted to begin there. Um, I was struck by something that you said in the book. AIDS robbed us of a lifetime of mentors, a devastating tragedy for our younger generations that missed out on their wisdom, knowledge, experiences, and fabulousness. There's something really striking to me about that particular line because it seems to contain that this is a book for your own son, but that this is also a conversation that you want to have across generations. Do you think that's accurate?
6: Right. I mean, the impetus for the book was our son was 15 when he told us he was gay, and i was elated Mm -hmm. i wanted him to be gay i Mm -hmm. hoped he'd be gay my greatest wish was for him to be gay and then he said daddy being gay is not a big deal Mm -hmm. my Mm -hmm. generation doesn't think it's a big deal and i thought oh no being gay is a really big deal Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. is the best thing about me It's the most important thing about me. And I didn't want him to grow up to be one of these people who said, gay doesn't define me. I just happen to be gay. small part of me. Yeah, make it really matter of fact, because it would diminish the blessing it is. When I came out in 1983, I had no Mm -hmm. gentle but firm hand to guide me. There Mm -hmm. was nobody showing me how to do this. Mm -hmm. And when I woke up and thought, I have to write him a letter, I thought, finally, my life makes sense. Mm -hmm. All the things I have done, the good, the bad, the secret, all finally make sense because I get to be the one to write the book that I so desperately needed when I was young. My life makes sense now after never making sense Mm -hmm. to me, Mm -hmm. to be able to be that person that can share this with my son and also hopefully other LGBTQ youth that Mm -hmm. need someone to help them gain their gay self-esteem
2: yeah i'd love to quickly just circle back to one thing you just said which was in is in the book too and it struck me as almost um dangerous because i feel like we're not like gay parents are not supposed to say that they want their children yeah. to be gay yeah. that that's like what the you know the right is like afraid i of, know we we're. my husband so, and i joke we're literally their worst yeah thing. yeah and so i I, I, I was i appreciated you writing that and i i would love to hear you speak a little bit more about what you mean by that because well, that's so rare i think I, First of all,
6: I love being gay and everything good in my life is because I'm gay. Mm. So why would I not want that for my son? (laughs) The other thing is, how could I parent with any self-esteem if every day I prayed he was nothing like me, (laughs) if I was Mm -hmm. like, please don't be like me, please don't be like me. The only way to do it was to
4: hope that he would have the blessing that I have had. I I agree with Brian that I found it genuinely shocking to hear someone articulate this I'm going to read what um, one of the sentences from the book towards the end if I were to answer I was born this way I didn't choose it. The logical conclusion I'm giving is that I would not choose it. That, of course, I would choose to be straight. That, of course, I really wish I were straight. That is not an acceptable outcome. I will not give anyone the impression that being a gay person living a gay life is not enviable. If it is a choice, I'd choose it. And this flies so much in the face of... I mean, it's funny because the Born This Way language already seems a little bit dated, but mm-hmm. that was a sort of recent, you know, call to arms uh, right. for younger um, queer people across the spectrum. And what Richie is, is positing is almost this notion of gayness as, almost, as identity that's nearer how we talk about race somehow Mm. you know that it's sort of like as tribal as communal ethnicity yeah Yeah. you know Mm -hmm. and that's sort of a remarkable way of thinking about that and I'm wondering when when that when your conception of your Mm. own gayness and the sense that gay as, as community came to you is that something that you came to later in your life or something that you thought of when you were still a young man
6: well I didn't when I was very very young when I was in the third grade I figured out I was gay and I was so happy because it it gave me a secret that I made (laughs) me feel special Mm -hmm. and I always felt chosen it wasn't till I got to New York in 1983 and moved right into the center of Greenwich Village Mm. that I found community and that I learned how to be gay from them and I and who we were we were angry we were gay we were imperiled we loved our secret society while we fought to be part of society that was all bounded us together Mm -hmm. and that's where i found our community
4: when i got to greenwich village in 1983 right at the beginning of the aids epidemic and i mean do you see that communal sense enduring for men of your son's generation i worry Hmm. I worry for a few reasons. I do worry if you grow up
6: thinking gay is not a big deal, then you're not exposing yourself to gay culture. You're not getting your news from gay journalists. You're not looking at gay writers. You're not immersing yourself in this community because you think it's not that important. Mm -hmm. And I worry also that our younger community members are complacent that the rainbows and the hashtag love is love is Mm. this veneer that Mm. everything is better and they don't understand the war that is being waged on us. And I was speaking to a parent the other day who told me her two children say they're not gay or straight. They're open, Mm -hmm. which I think if that's how they feel, that's beautiful, but open can't be an escape hatch to not being part of the struggle. Mm -hmm. And my friends who say they're fluid, are they going to stand up and say the LGBTQ fight is theirs? Mm -hmm. That's my concern. Mm -hmm.
3: I have to say, I love hearing you talk about this because it, it makes me think of two sort of related threads in political discussions, one of which is a fear That I hear among people of my generation and people younger than me that some older gay people, you know, are queer elders, many of whom were very invested in earlier fights for gay liberation, are the ones becoming complacent and are the ones that could sort of be bought off by marriage equality Mm -hmm. and sort of be taken in by the pageantry of the pride parade and feel like, oh, well, you know, we've, we've won so much. Isn't the fight mostly over? and you're saying that it that it might be the next generation that feels <laughs> yeah, that yeah i feel
6: exactly the opposite although i do think my generation and dare i say specifically white gay men like myself my age did walk away when they got marriage. Look, the the Empire State Pride Agenda in New York State, a political organization, closed Mm -hmm. down after they got marriage. That means they didn't stick around to fight for transgender people's Mm -hmm. rights. That means they left to fight for prep for all. There's Mm -hmm. many things that we still have to fight for, and I think gay white men like myself walked away after marriage. But when you bring up the parade, I am so challenged by the parade because when I was young, it was a March Mm -hmm. and it was an angry March and it was full of pink triangles and rage. Now it's rainbows and it just feels like blindingly positive Mm -hmm. and, and corporate now. Oh, it's, it's very corporate. And we had no corporations when I was growing up and we craved them. But now the, you know, these corporations that are in the parade are also the ones who are giving money to local politicians in states that are voting against our interests. Yeah. So they like yeah. pinkwash us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: I mean, I have to say that I'm I'm probably closer philosophically to your son's generation where I tend not to foreground... The necessity of thinking about being gay all the time, or like the the imperative to be reminded of, you know, I'm conscious of a history that precedes me, but I'm not overly thoughtful about it. And then one of the things I was so struck in reading this book was about your own experience. There's a really lovely story that you tell in the book about your mother taking you to see Torch Song Trilogy on Broadway yeah. when you were a teen. Right. And it seems clear in the way that you are telling the story that your mother anticipated your own gayness. I believe and she did. Yes. Was <laughs> taking you by design, taking you into the city to see a show that was really groundbreaking, and you talk about Harvey Firestein, who is now your friend, and you really kind of give him his due in a way that I was thrilled by, and I was, you know, I know he as a writer, as a performer, as a sort of as a, a, a figure who was willing to stand up to Barbara Walters on on television saying, I'm a gay man, that was a big deal, right? But I guess it it becomes, it's almost something that's hard to translate across generations, to be reminded that one point in time, I mean, even look at Ellen DeGeneres and look at, you know, when she received that award at the Golden Mm -hmm. Globes and she heard somebody, another performer articulate, that was a big deal, to stand up and say I am a gay woman, and, right. and Harvey Firestein, and everything d- that Ellen didn't say when she accepted that award. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mom, that, yes, mm-hmm. a, well, Richie,
2: uh, spicy <laughs> so takes. I'll be back next week to talk about <laughs> that.
4: <laughs> but I'd love to hear you um, talk a little bit about who Harvey Firestein was and what that play was and what that experience meant to you.
6: Well. Um, I was in high school in 1982. I was 17 years old. I had not told anybody I was gay, and I certainly hadn't told my parents. And one day my mother came home and said she had just seen this unbelievable play with this incredible actor who was also the playwright, and she bought tickets on the way out to take me. We did not have money to buy tickets Mm. at the box office, and we didn't have money to see something twice. So I said, what is it about? She said, homosexuality. She took me to see Torch Song Trilogy. The character of Harvey, uh, of Arnold, played by Harvey, was the first gay person I ever came in contact with. Mm. I knew I was gay. I never saw a gay person on TV. There were no gay politicians, no out movie stars. So that was my introduction. And at the end of the play, the character Arnold, played by Harvey, his mother says to him in this huge fight, if I knew you were going to be gay, I wouldn't have had you. Mm. And after the performance, my mother took me to dinner and said, if you ever came home and said you were gay, I would never react like the mother in that play. Mm. Nobody was talking to my Long Island mother in 1982 about gay people. Mm -hmm. It was her own humanity Mm -hmm. that had her take me to a Broadway show Mm -hmm. and use it as a crystal ball to say, this is your future and you're going to be okay. And so I devoured everything Harvey said offstage once I saw him on stage. And this is why it is so important to have gay actors play gay roles, mm-hmm. not only for what happens on stage, but for what young people like me get to see offstage. This is before social media. I still followed everything he said. And I watched his now famous interview with Barbara Walters, where he said, I think everyone's gay unless I'm told otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) Now, here I was, 17 years old. My gay self-esteem was just in the embryo stage. And that was a huge paradigm shift for me. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to have people be able to be offstage lights at the end of the tunnel like Harvey was
2: for me. I love the concept of gay self-esteem. You've mentioned it a few times in the book and you just mentioned it now. I'd love to hear you just talk more about that, but also I think connected to it is this notion that you uh, articulate a few times that gayness is a source of or can be a source of creativity mm. and sort of a creative life, not just, I think in art making, but in sort of the ways we live exist in the, the world, the way we right? live.
6: Cause there's, we're a complete blank canvas. Nobody has any expectation of us. Yeah. So we I, got I, to I, be and do whatever we want. Yeah. That's the freedom to being gay. Yeah. And what I did for, and why I wrote the book so I could help other people gain their gay self esteem and help, have parents learn how to do help their young lgbtq kids is i learn gay history because we're not taught it Mm -hmm. we are erased in our classrooms it's systematic child abuse that lgbtq kids are not taught about themselves so we have to find it for ourselves if we want to and the important thing about learning gay history isn't like oh you have to know your history it's a responsibility it makes you feel less alone. Mm. It makes you feel part of a long continuum of extraordinary individuals who changed the world. That will help you feel better about yourself. And then gay art and gay literature taught me that otherness was a superpower.
0: Mm.
6: So Andrew Holleran and Edmund White and Robert Mapplethorpe and Alvin Alley all helped me feel good about this superpower and taught me how to be gay. That's how I built up my gay self-esteem yeah. and that has helped me lead with my gayness. That has made it so I don't put it in a corner. I don't say it. I, I'm not defined by being gay. I am defined by being gay mm-hmm. and I want to be.
4: Well, I, you know, we, we heard before about how Torch Song Trilogy affected you as a young man. And it's lovely that you have sort of paid it forward and created a work that hopefully will similarly affect, uh, you know, a next generation of gay children and the parents who are trying to figure out what to do with them. So congratulations on your book. It's called Gay Like Me. Richie Jackson, thank you so much for being with us. Thank today. you so much for having <laughs> me. I really enjoyed it.
2: That's it for this month. Uh, But before we go, as always, we have some updates to the gay agenda. And as Christina mentioned at the top, this month we are talking about exclusively queer moments that we actually love. Christina, would you like to start?
3: Sure. So I've been thinking about this for probably years, and I'm so excited to have a platform to talk about it today. It's a commercial for Jelenia, which is an MS drug. It's a pharmaceutical commercial. And there is just a random butch in the commercial. It's there's probably 15 people of different ages and races and sizes, um, sort of splattering paint on a wall. And then at the end, there's this uh, a, a person I perceive to be a gender nonconforming woman walking up to the camera saying, you know, ask your doctor about Jelenia. And I, I tried to think about why this affected me so much, because it it wasn't necessarily an exclusively gay moment. Like I actually don't know what this person's sexuality is. But because I, but it stuck with me because there are a lot of people in commercials that could be gay, you know, gay people look all sorts of ways. But there are very few gender nonconforming people in commercials that have nothing to do with being gay. There might be gender nonconforming people in commercials like, if there's a commercial featuring a gay marriage or a gay couple with a kid or, you know, a commercial for prep or something, you might see some gender nonconforming people. And, and you know, these people are gay because this is a k- commercial about gay.
1: This one isn't. <laughs> there's
3: absolutely no reason for them to have a woman mm-hmm, with a right. faux hawk and right. these, you know, bootcut cut jeans and this deep voice and this like um, butch swagger walking toward the camera in it. Other than that, you know, it's just a queer person who has MS, you know, Mm -hmm. because queer people do have things like illnesses that affect all kinds of people. And I love that it has nothing to do with relationships or sex or love. It's just a person who, you Mm -hmm. know, if I saw them on the street, I'd be like, okay, I'm 99% sure that that person's queer. And especially for a pharmaceutical company, because it's not an industry that has a disproportionately queer customer base you know it's not even like an industry like you're trying to target people with higher than average disposable income which is why like hotel brands and alcohol right. brands yeah. and you know like sex toy brands will will target queer customers cuz they're like oh you know we are we think our customer base is disproportionately queer if you have MS, you're going to choose the drug that you and your doctor think is right for you or the one your insurance covers or, you know, it's not the one with the the casting of the commercial that really spoke to your identity. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't a limited run commercial either, like just in certain markets. So I'd just like to applaud the company that makes (laughs) Jelenia. And thank you to that actor for for providing me with queer representation in in the commercial.
2: I think you need to do like an oral history of that. Yeah. I've actually thought about about it. I had thought about it for that
3: Cut, the Cut series. I think about this a lot. I think about this a lot. Yeah, but then I'm sure I could write it for Slate. Um, But yeah, yeah, maybe I should do that.
2: I'd love to know. I'd love to know more. (laughs) Um, I'll do mine. I'm going to posit that HGTV as like a... Cultural universe is largely heteronormative. Mm-hmm. There is there there is gay aesthetic work happening in it a lot, uh, in terms of design and that kind of thing. But like in general, the notion of like a couple buying a house together, a straight couple buying a house together is, is sort of the main thrust of it, right? So I always thrill to the somewhat rare moments when gay people are featured in the show, so whether it's on House Hunters um, or any of the other rehab shows, um, they occasionally pop up, always very exciting for me. Love to see how they sort of interact with the process differently. Um, But I was... Uh, put in mind of one particular episode of my favorite HGTV show, which is Hometown. Um, do you guys know that um, one?
3: No idea. Oh. It's
2: this adorable straight couple uh, of, of house remodelers uh, in Laurel, Mississippi. And their project is oh, to wow. slowly uh, renovate each house in their town. To help revitalize it. And they're very sweet, very artistic, and like thoughtful, and just do a great job. It's a great show. Actually, the new season just started this week, so uh, you can check it out. But there is one episode from season three, uh, episode six, um, and the title is A Modern Millennial Makeover. Uh, that those
3: words are so coded So coded.
2: well yeah that featured a lovely young lesbian couple Carrie and Lakin one of whom was from the town had gone away to college and come back and it was just so lovely and refreshing to see an episode devoted to them buying a home you know, outfitting it together uh, and, and kind of making a life um, with the help of these, you know, a, I think a little bit nervous straight straight Southern people, <laughs> but like who were very much progressive and like into it and like wanting to do it well. Um, it was super charming and uh, was was very, again very nice to see in the broader kind of straightness that that HGTV often feels like. Um, so I highly recommend that oh, episode. That's so sweet. Yeah, that's yeah. So
3: sweet. HGTV is another one of those places where there's a ton of subtext, even among yeah. the straight couples Absolutely. who host these shows. Sometimes Absolutely. they both seem a little gay. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Um, a, a, just a couple of other notes about HGTV and <laughs> <It was> heteronormativity <laughs> because having. Um, Worked at a doctor's office for a few years. I've seen. Um, I think I calculated 180 days f- total of like HGTV oh content in terms of number of hours. Oh wow! Um, so I f- feel like somewhat of aficionado. But uh, first off, there's a great <laughs> show called Property Virgins, where they refer to the people oh buying God. property as virgins. Like, oh, the virgins are looking at this or looking at that. And it's very weird and very straight. And then also, did you? Any of you recently see the piece? I think it was in the New York Times or something about how. The perceived aesthetics of straight men uh, yes. are why we have so many open concept kitchens, kitchens yeah. on yeah. HGTV. And it's because they believe that straight men are much more interested in watching the demolition of walls, like, taking yeah. down Ooh, walls yeah. to open up yeah. the kitchens. Uh, and so that's how they think they're getting those straight male viewers to watch with wow. their wives
3: and yeah.
2: girlfriends. They so, need to I see mean, a hammer. Mm-hmm. So
3: between the, the general outrageousness of that and the fact that you love closed kitchens, Brian, yes. I feel like you must be extremely provoked
2: by yes. this. Oh, super. I mean, I, yeah, it's the greatest tragedy when they, when they open up a kitchen that doesn't need to be a, No, And it's good to know that it's straight men's fault. Um, yeah. that, that, that's vindicating for sure. Yeah. Close your kitchens. Nobody wants to see your mess. Close it.
3: <laughs> anyway, Ramon. Uh, yeah, um, Ramon, what's yours?
4: So I really struggled with this and I was thinking about myself as a young kid and what I watched and the way that, um, like, again, I mentioned Saved by the belt earlier and, like, a formative gay experience for me was watching Leonardo DiCaprio as, like, a 14-year-old homeless runaway on the last season of Growing Pains. I remember, like, that really being, like, I was, like, it is effectively. It felt like he was having a romance with Kurt Cameron, and as a fourteen-year-old hornball, I was like <laughs> dying the whole time. Yes. Um, but then this made me think about um, what television does to show gay kids now, and I was mm-hmm. thinking about the show Chopped, um, Chopped Junior, which is a cooking oh, competition yeah. show where these like often quite fabulous kids are like in their kitchens and suburbs all over the country being like, I love to make, like, seared foie gras with a delicious, (laughs) like, pomegranate salad. Um, And Project Runway Junior, where these, like, again, like, lots of little boys Mm -hmm. are sewing these, like, incredible garments. And you know, this is like, these are children. This is like a pre-sexual age, but as a child myself, I would have seen these kids and been like, whoa, mm-hmm. there's something happening here. Like, <laughs> this is means something to me. There's a secret being passed along. Uh-huh. And that strikes me as really sort of remarkable. And so... um, and actually, my husband and I have been talking about how we really need to watch Project Run My Junior with our kids um because there's something really remarkable about that. I mean, it's still like a dumb fashion competition show, and like I don't mean to oversell its like importance, but just in in terms of valorizing the kinds of kids who don't often get celebrated, that strikes yeah. me as really remarkable and like a very exclusively gay moment in this way that is still sort of safely coded because they are children. Mm. Um, but yeah, I love I always watch Chop Jr. when I'm on planes for some reason. Aww. And um I think it's really funny because there's just always one like little girl named Allison who's like, I love soccer <laughs> and I love grilling for my dad and my brothers. And I'm like, I love you, Allison. Like <laughs> I can't wait until like eleven years from now, you open like a restaurant in Wilmington, Delaware, and it's totally. just, like, the biggest <laughs> dike in town. Like I
2: love it. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's fantastic. I love that recommendation. Uh, yeah. Also hosted by a friend of Outward, Ted Allen. Yes. Uh, really? Yes. The lovely Ted Allen. Yeah. yeah.
3: What a great... I'm so glad we ended on a positive note for exclusively gay moments. Yes.
4: We can reclaim that for the kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: That's our episode for this month. Thank you so much for listening. Please send us your feedback and ideas for future topics at outwardpodcast at com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at SlateOutward. Outward. Thank you to Melissa Kaplan, who provided engineering assistance for this episode. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the exclusively gay senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. I promise I will not use that phrase anymore after this episode (laughs) is over. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends about it. Review the show and rate it. Give us five stars. We want other people to find it. We will be back in your feeds on February 14th for an extra special Valentine's Day episode. We're so stoked about that. Bye, Brian. See ya. See you later, Ruman. Bye, Christina. Stay gay, everyone.